Come on in to Margaret McSweeney's Kitchen for Kitchen Chat, where every week you'll meet chefs, cookbook authors, foodies, gourmets, and just plain people who love to eat. And along with laughter, chat, recipes, and stories about food, you'll sometimes also hear words of inspiration, love, and hope. As Margaret always says, Kitchen Chat is food for the senses and food for the soul. So grab a cup of coffee, put your feet up on a comfy chair, and get ready to spend a little time with Margaret and her friends. Hello, dear foodie friends, and welcome to Kitchen Chat. This is your host, Margaret McSweeney, and I'm so glad you're joining me in my kitchen today. And we have a very special guest. You all know him. He truly needs no introduction. I'd like to call you Chef Christopher Kimball, is a true expert with 35 years of experience. He's founder of America's Test Kitchen, and his most recent project is near and dear to his heart, which is Milk Street. And he's going to share with us all about that. But welcome to Kitchen Chat, Christopher. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Well, I love how you have just embraced this amazing culinary journey that has expanded throughout 35 years. And you are truly seen as American's test kitchen expert and uh, with a long running show on, on PBS. And can you share with us, how did your culinary journey begin? Did you have a curiosity about food? What drew you to this industry? Uh, I made a chocolate cake at age eight or nine with a uh, seven-minute frosting, a boiled frosting, uh, which looked like gruel, you know? I mean, it, it's a sugar syrup, egg white frosting. And uh, it was just a disaster. And uh <laughs> And I served it to the family, and my parents were quite complimentary. So, you know, the fact that they lied about my culinary skills inspired me to go into culinary world, I think. So, so sometimes not telling the truth is a really good idea. But that was my takeaway. <laughs> So it all began with a chocolate cake. And I understand you have a background or you studied, was it primal art? I was part of our uh, Columbia. I entered Columbia in 69, right during the revolution. So nobody actually studied anything during those years. Uh, but I was a primitive art major. I worked at the Museum of Natural History on Wednesday afternoons and putted around their Congo collection. And eventually I applied to Cornell for a PhD in oceanic art. And um, they wrote me a letter, which was, I should have kept, but the first sentence was, congratulations, you've been accepted. The second paragraph said, and you'll never get a job in this field. So um, they did me a great service by telling me, we're happy to take your money, but there are no jobs in Oceana Cards. So I, I, I took a detour and never looked back. Wow. So what exactly is Oceanic Art? Uh, it's the art of, you know, Java, Sumatra, Malaysia, the whole area. But it's, you know, it's the, the problem is, <clears throat> I discovered this after a couple of years, is that when you look at that art from a Westerner's point of view, you say really dumb stuff like, you know, it's a bifurcated design or whatever. Well, a lot of a lot of that art was never considered art. It was functional. You know, a wedding mask, for example, if you were in Sumatra or whatever, um, it was thrown away after the, after the celebration. Hmm. It wasn't put on somebody's wall, you know, <laughs> in a frame. So the art had a very important cultural context, which sitting in New York or Boston or in San Francisco, you've completely lost the point of. 
So I just felt that a bunch of Western educated art historians, you know, looking at art from other cultures they don't really understand was pretty pointless because it doesn't matter the abstract qualities of the art. It's the art was there to, you know, it was there for the wedding. But once the wedding's over, it's not art. It's really not art. Hmm. It's culture. It's different. Well, I love how all of this ties into your entry into the culinary arts and how you have blended so splendidly the art and science of cooking. What do you think has been your most surprising discovery or experience within, you know, you're testing all the different recipes, all the different techniques. What has surprised you most? Well, first of all, talking about the science of cooking, the more I learned about the science of cooking, the more I realized I didn't know anything because science, food science is enormously complicated. You know, I always say that's why Einstein wasn't a food scientist. It was just too hard because there's so many interactions, chemical interactions going on, um, and it's hard to separate them out. So, as I said, the more I learned, the less I knew. Hmm. Um, but there are there are some enduring myths which continue to this day, like marinades tenderize meat. They don't. It's just hmm. not true. I mean, first of all, marinades only penetrate maybe a quarter inch. I mean, the rate of penetration of a marinade is uh, it's very, very lo- uh, slow. Uh, secondly, it doesn't tenderize. It just, if it does anything, it'll just destroy the texture entirely. The only thing a marinade will do, um, if it's got salt in it, the salt, because of electrical charges and some other things, will get into the meat fibers very quickly. So salt will get in, and that'll help retain moisture. But marinades do not, you know, don't really do anything in terms of texture. They also don't really do much in terms of flavor because, you know, carbon-based foods like, you know, garlic, for example, uh, or spices, they don't really get into the meat um, at all. Hmm. Um, and, and the concentration of those items in the liquid is very low, unlike salt, where it's fairly high. And so you're much better off grilling something, for example, or cooking it some other way, and then bathing it in a marinade before you serve it. You know, that's really, essentially using the marinade as a sauce is probably better. So that's one of the myths. The other myths I find interesting is people think that if you cook meat in a moist environment, the meat will turn out mo- turn out moister. Hmm. Well, no. The only thing that really affects the internal content, moisture content of meat and tenderness is the internal temperature. So you can boil meat, you can roast meat, you can braise meat, doesn't matter. If you get it to 125 degrees internal, the inside of that meat will be identical, no matter how you cooked it on the outside. Now, certain methods might give you a bigger disparity between the center of the meat and the outside. Uh, but the fact of the matter is the temperature of the meat is what determines how much moisture is left in the meat. Because the, the higher the temperature, the more the uh, the muscle fibers start to twist and and, uh, and lose their moisture. So those are just a couple of things we found. And, and still today, people think marinades tenderize and they think that how you a moist environment gives you moisture meat. And those things aren't true. Oh, this is fascinating. Now, what in your journey has been the most challenging recipe to prepare and to perfect? There are certain things you should never do at home, like don't make croissant. I mean, you, you can if, if, if that's what you love, 
but forget it and don't make puff pastry because that's stupid. Um, <laughs> and so, because it's so hard to do. So the, I, I think there's certain things that just are not worth pursuing at home because these days you can actually go out and buy a pretty good croissant. You can, I'll just buy puff pastry in the frozen section if I ever need to use it because it's so much work. Um, I would say the litmus test for me is apple pie. And I know that's kind of a silly thing to say, but <laughs> every time you make apple pie, it turns out differently because the apples are different, right? Yes. True. And so you have to kind of think about the ingredients. If you have very juicy apples or if you have apples that tend to break down like Macintosh versus grannies, which tend to hold their shape. So if you did it with all Macs or similar apples, you'd have to add some flour to thicken it up. Uh, if you did a granny, you might do something different. So the apple pies and, and the pie pastry is tough for people to do properly. And so if you want to know if someone's a good cook, ask them to make an apple pie. And that's really the, the one that's going to tell you a lot about their cooking and baking skills. Uh, and besides which, then you get an apple pie you can eat, which, of course, is at the top of my food pyramid. So. <laughs> and what do you have a special secret ingredient that you really enjoy in preparing your apple pie? Yeah, don't don't put cinnamon in it. Oh, um, I don't put any spices in my apple pie anymore. I, I just want the apples, and um, I want lemon juice and not too much sugar. You know, I'm easy on the sugar, and get the really great apples and and vary them. You'll use three or four different kinds, and um, you know, and you could add a little tablespoons of butter if you wanted to enrich it a little bit. But I, I, you know, I used to put all spice in. I used to put cinnamon. In it. A ginger, a little ginger, mm. is good. Uh, maybe, but I, I just want the, I just want to taste the apples. I, I want apples and pie pastry. I don't, I don't want anything else. Lemon zest maybe, but I don't want cinnamon. I mean, cinnamon, the, the problem with cinnamon is, you know, in Northern Europe, there were just a handful of spices, right? Because mm -hmm. we weren't on a spice route and uh, like the Ottomans were down in Constantinople, Istanbul. So, you know, salt, pepper, maybe cinnamon, nutmeg, you know, a couple other things, fennel, maybe. Um, and so cinnamon became this ubiquitous ingredient, spice that is just grossly overused. And it's very powerful. You know, in many parts of the world, cinnamon is used in savory cooking like North Africa. Right. So I love, I love cinnamon with poultry or with beef, or pork, and it's, it's a good spice rub. It's often used with um, meats. So I, I think it goes well with meat, but put it with something delicate like apple, really, a, you know, a quarter teaspoon tops. But don't use a teaspoon or half teaspoon. Oh, this is just great advice. And I love how in your latest endeavor, and I cannot wait for the listeners to hear all about Milk Street, how you really are even further expanding and elevating the flavors and the profiles of of the palates here in, in the United States. Can you share with us why you are so passionate about your Milk Street project and, and just share with the listeners about that? Yeah, I mean, my cooking changed a few years ago. And the, the problem is that for when I learned to cook in the 60s and the 70s, that the other, it was Northern European cooking, right? I mean, that was the basis of traditional American cooking. And there's you know, millions of cuisines here in America from different immigrant groups, but that, that was Fanny Farmer and you know, et cetera, um, joy of cooking. Mm -hmm. um, and so it turned, turns out that that style of cooking um, existed for a reason. It came from a place where there were no spices to speak of. There were very few herbs used, no chilies, no fermented sauces like soy sauce. 
you know, didn't use ginger, you know, uh, didn't, didn't use big flavors. And so that style of cooking was very limited because you used bland ingredients, meat, potatoes, root vegetables, et cetera, milk. Uh, and you use technique and time to develop flavor. Everyone talks about the Maillard reaction, which just means when you eat up proteins, you, there's hundreds of flavor compounds released. Mm-hmm. So that's when you saute meat, you get flavor. <clears throat> so there's a lot of heat there to develop flavor. That's why, you know, English cooking is all about roast. You know, you put it on a spit in front of a coal fire for four hours and you get that wonderful flavor um, from the heat. Well, the rest of the world doesn't think that way. And I think the rest of the world is often smarter. I mean, there are many things in our traditional American cooking that I adore, as I said, like apple pie and biscuits and cornbread, lots of wonderful things. But if you think about the rest of the world, they start with big flavor. (laughs) They don't use a sprig of thyme. They use a handful of dill or a handful of basil or a handful of cilantro or parsley. They they use, you know, dozens of spices. Um, They don't use salt and pepper. They use salt and cumin in the Middle East, right? Right. Because cumin... And salt actually are sort of great base flavors. You know, they use chilies. So they start with big flavor and then the cooking is not as important. That is, you don't need to you don't need the heat to really develop flavors like you do in northern European cooking. So Mill Street's all about going, okay, you know, the world's getting small. The fashion industry does this, the music industry does this. It's an amalgam of styles from around the world, and that's what's gonna happen in the home kitchen. It's already started. People can get a wider range of ingredients. You can get dozens of spices. You can get soy sauce and fish sauce. I mean, these, these, these are not weird things anymore. Right. And if you start with big flavor, you end with big flavor. You don't start with a little bit of flavor and work hard to get up the scale to big flavor. So the rest of the world cooks more quickly in general, uh, more easily, more simply, more practically. But they just start with big flavor. Uh, it's a very simple formula. But it's transformative. I mean, I'm now cooking food that's five times better than what I used to cook. I mean, it's just got a ton of flavor. I got a lot of spices in there. And and it's easier. I'm not sauteing meat to make a stew. If you put two pounds of meat in a stew, you don't need to saute it. You got plenty of umami with the meat, right? Yes. Um, And so if you think of a classic beef stew, two or three pounds of meat, you saute it in batches, which takes 20 minutes, and then you make a huge mess, right? And then you add beef stock right? Mm-hmm. It's like Coles to Newcastle. So now you've got umami development with a meat, with a sautéing. You've got a beef stock, et cetera. You know. So you end up with a one-note dish, which is everything tastes like umami, like beef, like meat. Well, other places in the world might use a pound of meat. Mm-hmm. You don't sauté it because you cook it in water. Now, if you cook a, a pound or two of meat in water for a couple hours, guess what happens? You get a stock. So you've made your own stock, you started with water, and then the other flavors, you know, the cumin comes through or the herbs come through or the vegetables come through. So now you have balance. And so the world's all about sweet, sour, salty, bitter. Bitter's not something that's used very much here. You know, maybe in the South, collard greens, there's Mm -hmm. some bitter flavors, but in general, it's not an American thing profile. So adding sweet things to savory things is not an American concept at all. We have big desserts, but we tend to segregate sugar to the ends. Um, so there's this whole world of cooking out there that's it's, it's better in many cases. It's simpler, and you get bigger flavors. And so that's what Milk Street's all about. 
Well, I'm going to start calling you maestro, Christopher Kimball, because you're creating a <laughs> symphony <laughs> on the plate. Well, the it's kitchen. a new repertoire. I mean, it's, um, you know, we'll look back in 10 or 20 years at this point in history, culinary history in America, and go, you know, what were we thinking? You know, we, we're still, although in our restaurants, you know, you can go to any town in America and get really interesting food now. Right. You can get Tibetan food in the middle of Pennsylvania, wow. in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. There's a restaurant called the Tibetan Grill. I was there a year ago. It was great, packed for lunch. Well, people know what Tibetan food is. They know what real Thai food is. It's not just Pad Thai. They know what real Mexican food is. It's not just burritos. They know what a Moroccan food is. You know, they. It's not just Italian food and French food. And so all of that experience in television, the internet, Amazon for delivery of products. All of that is going to just upturn, overturn the tradition of home cook uh, in a good way. You know, without this isn't complicated. You know, I hate the term ethnic, but back in the 70s, that's what we called it was ethnic cooking. Right. Paula Wolford from Morocco, Danny Kennedy in Mexico, Julie Sani in India, et cetera. And you, Grace Young. So you end up with these uh, vertical groups of recipes that for the most part were sort of restaurant style recipes you might make on a Saturday afternoon once a month. But what's going to happen now is, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll cook up some lentils on Tuesday night. I'll throw in, I um, might use some harissa, some, you know, Tunisian hot sauce you can buy in any supermarket now, put that into a little bit of yogurt and use that as a good dip. So we're, we're, we're just going to mix and match. And that's what's happened to the rest of the world. And, you know, as I said, music and fashion have gotten here long before food. Yes. And you're, you are just helping the home chefs better understand this idea of shared plates with a world cuisine. And I subscribe to your newsletter. And listeners, I'm going to make sure I put a link to 177milkstreet.com. But I love um, one of your your recent um, newsletters included about harissa. And, and I loved learning about right. that and also about how broccoli is considered a sauce in Italy. That was so intriguing to well, hear. Yeah, we were in Rome. Uh, my editor was in Rome a couple months ago. And it's so interesting when you go somewhere and spend time and cook with a home cook or with a chef, but mostly home cooks, you realize that whatever we do here, their, you know, our version of their food, you go back to where it came from and you really realize, well, yeah, they, 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 they use, uh, they use broccoli to make a sauce or, you know, we found out there are three basic Italian pasta sauces that are all closely connected. Cacio e pepe, cheese and pepper, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just some cooking water, a little bit of cheese. It's, it's it's easy to make there because their cheese is particularly moist. Um, we had to pull a couple of tricks to make it work here. But anyway, you add um, then this Gricia, G-R-I-C-I-A, which has a little guanciale, the, the cured pork jowl in it. And then if you do that recipe but add a little bit of egg to it, you have carbonara. Oh. So you start with cacio e pepe. Add guanciale, you know, the pork jowl, the cured meat, you could add pinchetta, whatever. And then the third time, you add some eggs to it. So now you've got cacio pepe, you have the uh, griccia, uh, and then you have carbonara. And they're all related. They all take about six minutes to make. 
Wow, six yeah. minutes. <laughs> I love well, the, I mean, you, by the time you cook the pasta, you can make the sauce. And, and it's not, you know, any Italian cook, you know, this is easy. This is just a few ingredients. You don't need some big, long recipe to figure out how to do carbonara. You know, it's, it's in, in here, carbonara is a big production, right? Right. But not, not there. They just throw a couple eggs into the their cheese and pepper sauce, you know, and a little bit of, uh, you know, pinchette or cured meat, whatever, pork. <laughs> oh, that is fantastic. And that ties in very nicely with one of the questions that came in on social media for you. Mangia with Michelle was asking what type of pork product uh, do you use in your carbonara? <laughs> so... Yeah, I mean, it's guanciale is what they used, and uh, it's which is wonderful. If you can't get, it, as I said, you could use pancetta or whatever. But um, yeah, that's that's was traditionally what was used because it was, um, you know, strongly flavored and a little salty, and um, is is perfect for seasoning. It's it's not like you know a leg of ham, you know, a right. large piece of ham. Right. Um, it's just, it's it's really used as a flavoring, so that's what traditionally what's used. Oh, that's terrific. And some other questions that came in, Healthier Kitchen asked, what is his favorite cooking oil of choice and favorite way to make eggs? You know, um, the olive oil, the reason the Italians use olive oil is they have olive trees like in every backyard, right? I mean, that's just what they have. And it's great. But grapeseed oil is one of my is my, is my go to oil mm-hmm. for cooking. It has a higher smoke point, and it's nice and neutral. I don't like canola oil. Canola oil tastes a little fishy to me. So all through the Middle East, grapeseed oil is a, a typical thing. So that's what I use, um, and I'll use olive oil more to finish. But you know, if you have an inexpensive olive oil, it's fine to use it in cooking. And the other question was what? Oh, and what is your favorite way to make eggs? Oh yeah, this this is uh, in the first issue of Mill Street. I I found uh, a recipe, a Basque recipe for scrambled eggs that used olive oil, not butter. Mm. And so I heated up. Probably it was more than a tablespoon. Probably two tablespoons. It was quite a lot in a carbon steel skillet. Got it really hot. Added my two eggs, and they puffed up immediately. And they just went boom, you know. Mm. And it took maybe fifteen seconds to cook. Well, the science is that oil. Uh, gets much hotter than butter because butter's got 20% water. Uh, that water has to evaporate before the fat can get to a higher temperature than the boiling point. So butter doesn't get that hot, but oil does. Now that, that oil is going to get well over 300 degrees pretty quickly. Wow. So if it gets just below smoking, you might get up to 380 or 400. You put the eggs in and then all the water in the eggs turns to steam. And so you get this incredibly light, fluffy scrambled eggs. Um, and and then you can taste the eggs. You don't have the butter in it. Uh, so it's not greasy. It's just really wonderful. So that that's, you know, a friend of mine said years ago, there's nothing new under the sun when it comes to cooking. So that's just an old. And, and the reason is they probably cooked everything with alcohol. You know, <laughs> they probably didn't use that much butter. So that's why they did it that way. But it turns out to be a better way. Great to hear. Uh, Sean Timberlake asks, what spices do you turn to most frequently? Well, um, 30 years ago would have been salt and pepper, but now it's very different. Mm -hmm. Um, I got to say cumin's right up there. Uh, With coriander and cumin, I use all the time. Uh, Turmeric, I do tend to use a fair amount. 
I find that um, Urfa pepper, which is a very uh, moist flakes of pepper, it's a little chocolatey. It's really a wonderful thing. I really like that a lot. Um, and I use Sichuan peppercorn. And I'm sorry, how uh, do U-R-F-A. you U-R-F-A. U-R-F-A, Urfa pepper. Wow. Yeah, it's got a real sort of chocolatey, deep, rich look and taste to and it. where is that uh, Lepo from? pepper. That's from the Middle East. From it's a classic okay. ingredient. I mean, use it. Um, one really good way to use it is if you slowly cook onions, like a whole bunch of them for like 45 minutes to really caramelize them uh, and throw a bunch of Urfa pepper in it. Um, it's, it's a Moroccan thing. You use that as a filling or use that with meats or whatever. It's delicious. Uh, Aleppo pepper, although it's hard to find for obvious reasons because yes. the war in Syria, real Aleppo pepper, but it's a, it's a red pepper that's spicy, but it's kind of fruity at the same time. Um, so there's a whole bunch of things I use, but yeah, a real, real white pepper, which is kind of interesting, which is almost never used. It's only used in French cooking because they don't want you to see the black pepper. <laughs> you have a white soup, but it's, it's got a different flavor profile. I think Pimenton smoked paprika from Spain um, is terrific. Uh, that's one of my favorite spices. It goes in a lot of stuff. There's a wonderful recipe for a stale bread garlic soup with like two tablespoons of smoked paprika in it. There's a few others, but those are the ones that probably come to mind oh, uh, the quickest. That sounds great. Um, Ann Wolf-Postick writes, do you have any favorite ways to rescue overcooked meat? <laughs> she is ashamed and embarrassed, but she completely destroyed a butterfly leg of lamb this year. Well, um, yes. <laughs> uh, you can start a lot of things. Just serve it and tell people that it's a slow-cooked leg of lamb. Um, I mean, a lot of places will cook lamb for hours. The problem is they wouldn't use a leg because it doesn't have much fat. They use mm. a shoulder or something. But, yeah, it's in leftovers. I mean, stir-fry rice is the best way to use any leftover, any kind of meat. So you could dice it up. Ah. Um, you could, you know, a bowl of rice often for dinner. You could just put toppings on it. and You could certainly use it in that. So it would be something you could use up as a small amount, diced up probably, uh, with other things, so you don't really notice that it's overcooked. The other thing to do is there are a lot of places in the world where you have a sandwich with a relish of some kind, called many different things in different places, but you get a nice spicy relish and put that on a bun with the sliced overcooked leg of lamb, um, and that'll be fine. You know, it'll be it'll work out just fine. So you you want to pair it with something else, really, and the lamb is not necessarily the main thing. Perfect. Oh, great advice. And don't throw it out, whatever you do. Absolutely. Yeah. Do not waste food at all. Or uh, soup. I mean, yeah. you also make a soup with it. Yeah. Great idea. Uh, Nicholas Gandy just wanted to write in, said he's been following you for years and loves Milk Street and is a subscriber. Um, and then also West of the Loop uh, wrote a question asking, what uh, knife do you recommend? A few. Uh, we designed the knife with Henkel's a while back. It's a seven-inch cook knife. It's sort of a, a little bit like a Santuco. It's thin. Um, it has a deeper blade that is high, you know, width. Um, and it's designed, so it's lighter. It's about six ounces, not eight or ten. So it's easy to get hold of, to work with. Um, it's just a good all-purpose knife. 
my the, the two other knives we use a lot, and we we're just designing them now. One's a, a, a Nakiri, N A K I R A. It's a Japanese style knife. It's two inches deep. It's rectangular, um, and it's used for vegetables. And um, it's wonderful because you can cut right through vegetables, slice through very easily because it's a thin blade, and it's very easy to use. Um, the other knife, you know, for fifteen or twenty bucks, you can buy a Chinese vegetable cleaver. They're four inches deep, twice as deep as a Nakiri. Um, and they're not, they're inexpensive, but boy, they're terrific. They're very safe because they have such a wide blade. Oh, um, the blade can f- fit up against your knuckles when you're working. Um, and it's, it's great for slicing, uh, but it's also great for smashing garlic or smashing ginger. And it's great for scooping things off a cutting board. You know, instead of using a dough scraper, you can just use the knife. Right. So, Fuchsia Dunlop, for example, who wrote Every Grain of Rice, she introduced me to this years ago, and um, it's her knife. You know, she bought one for eighteen bucks, and that's the knife she uses. <laughs> so they're wow. they're wonderful knives. You, you don't have to spend two hundred dollars, one hundred fifty dollars, on a big European knife. I mean, you can, but that's for people who are very good with a knife. I, th- I think those big professional style ten ounce knives from Europe um, have their place, but if, if you don't sharpen your knife, and most people never sharpen their knives, you know, you, you, you probably want a knife that's safer and lighter and easier to use. Great. And you have some on your website. We do have some knives on our website. Our knives are now being sold at retail, like Surlatov and Bed Bath & Beyond, oh, et cetera. But uh, right now we have an assortment of other knives on our site, but they'll be on our site somewhere yeah. Terrific. And speaking of your site, I was thrilled to note that you have cooking classes at a cook, your cooking school yeah. at Milk Street. Can you share with us some of the upcoming events and um, how people can connect with you for that? Yeah, you, again, it's on our website, 177 Milk Street. We, uh, we give three classes a week here. Uh, the courses change all the time. Um, you know, not not my mother's chicken, you know, or the the new stew or uh, herbs and spices. We have lots of different classes. We have a knife technique class coming up this fall. We also do uh, event classes where we have a guest come in, um, a well-known, like uh, Sami Nosrat from Salt, Spicy, et cetera, that new book that did very well last fall. Mm-hmm. So we'll have a guest chef in and cook and do a demonstration. I'll interview them. So we do those as well. Uh, we have demonstration classes with hands-on classes. We can take up to 16 people in a hands-on class where everyone's actually cooking. We have eight cooking stations uh, here in the kitchen in Boston. Um, and then we also do some a lot of nonprofit work. The Big Sisters of Greater Boston, Girl Scouts, Boys and Cl- Girls Club of Dorchester. Uh, we're working with a local hospital with young adults who have cancer to get them involved with cooking classes. So the, the cooking school really supports the uh, the outreach we do as well, which is important for our work here. Oh, and I love that. And the Kitchen Chat listeners love the pairing of charity and cuisine. So thank you for all that you're doing for that. And then real quickly, you Pleasure. have a book coming up in October. Could you share with us about that? Yeah, uh, it almost killed us, but uh, we finally <laughs> got it done last week. Uh, Little Brand is our publisher. We work with them there. This Little Brown's been my publisher for a long time. Yes. It's called Milk Street Tuesday Nights. And what we did was come up with recipes that are relatively simple and quick, but use the Milk Street philosophy, which is big flavor. So 
it's broken into fast, faster, fastest, plus some other chapters. So, you know, some of them are under 60 minutes, some under 45 minutes, some under 30 minutes. But the idea was suppers, that is Tuesday, things you can make on a Tuesday night, but they have big flavor, you know. So they're all big flavors, spices, herbs, you know, really strong, strongly flavored ingredients, but they're also fast. And oh, I have to say, it's, I think they're... 200 recipes. Each one has a full page photograph and they're, um, you know, when you buy a cookbook and I've bought hundreds, if not thousands of them over the years, you know, the, the question always is, you know, how many recipes are you going to make out of a book? And my answer to that was always like, if you find two or three recipes in a book you like, that's a winner. Hmm. But when I was looking through the page proofs last week, I'd say I'd make, well, I already have I made a lot of them, but I'd probably make 60 or 70% of them because you know, my formula is I do I do spend a lot of time cooking on the weekends, but during the week I don't. And I, it's got to be relatively quick. But I want something interesting, and I want I want a new flavor, a new taste, and something that's you know you put it in your mouth and you have to think about it a little bit. You know, it's, there's a lot going on. So that's that's what we're trying to do with that book. I love that big flavor. And I just so appreciate all that you continue to do through Milk Street and bringing bringing the world to our home kitchens and and just elevating the food literacy of the home chef as well. And is there a, a special cookbook that really changed your life? Yeah, it was Yotam Otolenghi. I met him years ago. I, I went to one of his stores. He does a lot of sort of takeout food in London. Now he has a couple of restaurants. And it was we, we actually sat down. They had a couple of tables there and we sat down and ate. And then I met him. Uh, he came to this country a few years ago, three years ago, four years ago, I met him. And um, yeah, I started cooking out of Plenty in Jerusalem and mm. uh, those books. And I found, you know, he, he called for two cups of an herb. I thought it was a misprint, you know, mm. uh, or there'd be a, a tablespoon of a spice, not a teaspoon. And I just found the combinations of ingredients interesting. And all of a sudden I was going like, wow, this is like, this is so different than what I'm used to. And then, and then it became second nature after a couple of years. I just, I, I craved it. Um, I just fell in love with it. I became addicted to that kind of cooking. Now, some of his recipes probably are a little more complicated sometimes than people want. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the combinations of flavors and textures are so interesting that, um, you know, it just, it was a totally different way. It's like learning a new language. It's like, oh, there are people in the world who don't speak English. You know? <laughs> and then all of a sudden you realize, hey, you know, Italian is kind of a cool language, you know, or Thai or whatever. Right. You know, it's, uh, I was, I was in Taipei a few months ago. This is what I love about what I do. When I travel, I, I cook with people. Mm. And um, there was an 80 year old woman who'd been making scallion pancakes for 33 years in her little tiny store when she lived above the store in Taipei in a little alley and she was, you know, four foot eight and I'm six foot two. (laughs) And we go into the back of the store where she makes like 40 of these a day. Right. So the, the thing is she's trying to teach me how to do it. Well, I'm fairly good with rolling pens and pie pastry, but this dough is very different. So I started working with it and then she started getting mad at me telling me (laughs) I was doing it all wrong, you know? And then, and then halfway through the process, I forgotten that she, she spoke Mandarin. She was from China originally. So I didn't speak her language. She didn't speak mine, but we had no problem getting talking to each other. 
And then finally she, she, she said, okay, I did it. Okay. You know, she finally said, well, it wasn't too bad, but I didn't need the translator to tell me because when you cook in the kitchen, I mean, you, you have a common language, which is a little corny, but it's true. No, it is um, true. And that's the joy of it is you're sitting there with an 80 year old who, who doesn't speak English. I don't speak her language, but she taught me how to make scallion pancakes. And she treated me like, you know, I was some poor, dumb student off the street, which is perfect. <laughs> you know, it's exactly what you want. So when you travel and cook with somebody, you have this great experience. Uh, and then her 95-year-old mother came down to make sure she was doing it right. So oh, no. um, <laughs> she, she was the one who taught her. So that's the charm of it. You realize it's not their food and our food. It's just food. Right. 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 And that's the message. The, the takeaway is it's just food. And so when you talk about food, you can go anywhere in the world and have a conversation without using the same language because you have the language of cooking. And, oh. you know, it's just a, it, it's heartwarming because you can have an intimate experience with somebody just on the basis of being in a kitchen. Oh, this, what you're saying resonates with me so much, Christopher. Um, as many of the listeners know, the reason that I do kitchen chat, it's my midlife culinary journey as a way to honor my late father, who was an incredible gourmet home chef and world traveler. And uh, he passed away 27 years ago. And I've been trying to understand what his joy of cooking and eating is. And I've I've run across so many of his letters to his mother and, and to my mother and where he writes about just the cuisines. And this was from decades ago. And just having sampled a, a taste of the world and, and the culture. And, and you're right, it just brings us all closer together. And, and food just invites and unites us all around the table. Yeah, and it's the oldest, you know, the oldest tradition in the world is if your enemy comes to your house for dinner, you feed him. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you treat him like a king, right? Right. Now, when he leaves the house, then maybe things <laughs> don't work out so well. But at least while they're while they're in your house, the, the, the notion of hospitality is is age old. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I just yeah. You know, I mean, it, it is a common language, and um, and it's fun. And and I, I just regret that more people don't spend more time in a kitchen rather than looking at a screen, but. Right. Maybe that'll change. <laughs> well, now there are more screens in the kitchen with things automating, so maybe that will bring them into the kitchen. <laughs> Whatever, you know, I don't care. If your screens bring them in the kitchen, that's fine with me. I'm all for the screens. Absolutely. No and is there any one flavor you feel that is yet to be discovered and experienced? Yeah, I think the next new flavor, although I don't really care much about trends, but as I said earlier, bitter. I think that's the one. Bitter is very highly prized in lots of cultures, you know, bitter melons, et cetera, uh, because it, it's a strong flavor, mm. if you will, if you want to call it a flavor. Um, and it's a really important to pair bitter with other things. And so the American palate, the, the English palate, et cetera, is very much a sweet palate, right? I mean, right. Uh, or meat, but but bitter has not been important. But in other places in the world, I, I think bitter is one. Texture is another. Um, mm. In many places in the Far East, uh, you know, chicken feet people like in China because it has that kind of chewy, gristly mouthfeel, mm. and so the feel of something in the mouth is part of the pleasure of eating. Uh, yet in this country, 
people don't want their steak to be chewy. You know, they want tenderloin. Right. right. Uh, because they, they, they don't want to chew. But other places in the world love the chew. Hmm. Uh, the, the French, for example, their steaks are chewy mostly, right? I mean, the, the entrecote or the filet mignon is, is not something people order very much. So I, I think texture and food, real texture and bitter are two things that are going to become sort of make our palates more interesting, but oh, it'll take time. Fascinating. And I'd like to end the show with three quick tips you might have for the home chef. Yeah. Use salt. Um, you know, people are afraid of salt. 95% of your salt intake comes from outside the home, not inside the home, from processed food and restaurant food and fast food. So without enough salt, you just kill a dish. A little, The right amount of salt just makes all the difference in the world. Uh, two, use enough heat. Um, you know, if you, if you're going to brown something, make sure the pan is, the oil is about to smoke. Uh, but there are other times when you should use lower heat, like doing onions, for example. Um, I find they cook much better over lower heat. They're less likely to burn and you get a nice, much more slowly developed flavor. I really like the third is is use your ears because very often when I'm cooking, I can hear it when something's cooking at the right rate. Um, you know, if something's boiling, if something's simmering, if something's sautéing, um, if if it's too rapid and too aggressive, then I know I have to turn the heat down. So listening in the kitchen is also really important. Oh, great tips. Christopher Kimball, thank you so much for being on Kitchen Chat today. Yeah, my pleasure, really. Thanks for having me. Oh, this is fantastic. And, and you are truly the maestro of big flavor. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to put that in my cards. Right, Please do that. <laughs> All right. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you, yep, dear. Thank you. Oh, thanks. And thank you, dear foodie friends, for joining yep. me on Kitchen Chat. Always remember to take a moment and savor the day. Thanks for joining Margaret for Kitchen Chat today. Margaret would be so excited for you to drop by and visit with her at kitchenchat.info, where you'll enjoy podcasts, blogs, recipes, tips from chefs, and even great giveaways. She invites you to share your recipes and kitchen stories, too. As Margaret always says, savor the day.